Well, as I'm sure you are aware, today marks the beginning of a very special and important week for us as Christians. This is the week that we seek to commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christians for many centuries have referred to this week as Holy Week. Uh, but of course, you know, this isn't the only time that we spend re- reflecting on Jesus. Uh, we often, uh, as Christians, all the time spend time thinking about and talking about Jesus, and we reflect on the awesome uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so as we think about that this week, the culmination of that will be our celebration of, of Jesus Christ rising from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. But as Christians, we, we do that all the time, right? Jesus and who he is and what he did for us is always the focus, or at least it should be the focus, of everything that we do all the time. But still, we should think, okay, why is this week in particular important? Why is this week so special? Well, it's an opportunity for us to, to zoom in on the blazing center of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and who he has called us to be. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this week is what makes Christianity totally different from any other religion or philosophy on the planet. Christianity isn't merely a a code of ethics or a guide to finding happiness and peace and discovering our best self. Now, when when we pick up our Bible, when we read the Bible, what we find is God's revelation of himself. God is showing us through the words of Scripture who he is, and how he created the world according to his good design. He's he's showing us why this world is so broken, filled with evil and confusion about what's right and what's good. We also see in the pages of scripture a lot about us. So why are we so broken, so confused, so angry, so anxious, so distracted, so tired? But also in the pages of scripture, we see God's merciful plan to intervene on our behalf, to redeem a people for himself, and to renew his creation. And in in the Bible, we see God's words, God's wisdom for us, and how we can live lives characterized by hope and joy and love and holiness, even while we struggle. But, But what's the problem? There is a problem. You see, Ever since sin entered the world, we are hardwired to assume that our life is in our own control, that we can decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, that we can define the exact terms of our obedience to God, that we can look to our own goodness and our own religious efforts to earn God's forgiveness and God's favor. We we are experts at crafting a religion of self. It's all about us, who we are in what we've done and what we can do. But when we look in the Bible, we look in God's word, specifically in the Gospels, we see Jesus himself confronting this religion of self head on. And in our text today, we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, okay? And and in our text here, we see Jesus arriving in Jerusalem with his eyes set on the cross. And what Jesus sees before him is what he's about to do. He's about to accomplish his mission of redemption. He's going to show us what true religion is all about. 
So when we look at the, the gospel of Matthew, it's helpful to, to know the background of it and kind of what, what, that's, what this gospel is all about because we're going to zoom in on a specific passage today. But first we want to know that uh, you know, the gospel of Matthew was written by, by Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus, who became one of the 12 apostles. Uh, he was, uh, Jesus found him, he was, he, was a former, he was a tax collector, and Jesus called him out of his life. Jesus calls him out of his life of, of sin and extortion, and he says, you're going to follow me, and you're going to be one of my own. And so this, gospel, this, this disciple, Matthew, writes a detailed account of Jesus' ministry. And he writes it primarily for the Jewish people. And his purpose in writing this gospel is to demonstrate, number one, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who will establish God's kingdom on earth and redeem God's people, Israel, and all the nations. So that's a mouthful, but essentially Jesus is the king who's going to come to set everything right. And he's going to fulfill all the promises that Israel's looked at for, for their entire life. And then secondly, Matthew's purpose in writing this gospel is he wants to, uh, to, to, to show that Jesus came to call God's people to repent from false self-righteous religion and to take refuge in Jesus the Messiah by faith. So throughout this book, if you, if you spent, if you, hopefully you've spent some time reading the Gospel of Matthew, but uh, if you read it, some themes that you see throughout the book is, number one, Jesus is, the, is God's chosen, beloved servant from Isaiah 42. So in Isaiah 42, we have uh, Jesus saying, okay, I've, I've, I've chosen my, my servant whom I take delight in. He's my beloved, and he's going to come, and he's going to bring justice to the earth. And this is the coming king that... that the, the Jews have set all of their hope on, that the people of God have set all their hope on. But then secondly, Jesus has divine power over creation to, to heal sickness and to cast out demons. He's got divine authority to explain what it truly means to live in full obedience to God. So Jesus comes and we see throughout this gospel that he's interpreting the law to the Jewish leaders and to, to others who are thinking they know God, they understand the law and all the promises that God has given them. But Jesus comes and he says, let me, let me show you how this is fulfilled and how it's being fulfilled in me. And along the way, we see opposition from Pharisees and Sadducees who, who challenge Jesus' authority. And they insist on a religion of self. They want a religion of self as the way to seek God. So that brings us to Matthew 21. In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and he's welcomed as the king that he is. He, he comes in riding on a donkey, and crowds are shouting to him, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus is recognized for who he is. But what does Jesus do as soon as he goes in, into Jerusalem? What does he do as soon as he enters, and he's got his eyes set on the mission that he's going to accomplish? Well, according to Matthew, Jesus makes a beeline to the temple. He goes straight to the temple, the center of Jewish religion, the center of where, where Jews, uh, the people of God, go to, to meet with God, to pray to God, to give sacrifices to him. This is, it, this is the center of all of our, our hopes and our dreams of God's redemption for us. The temple, this physical place, this is where, God go, or this is where Jesus goes. So this is where we want to begin our study this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 22. If you're using the Bibles provided for you in the pews, that's found on page 826. 
And let's go ahead and read. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went, on, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Take up and be, thrown, uh, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive in faith. So in this passage here, we see two scenes, okay? So if, you're, like if we're looking at a play or a movie, there's two scenes that we have before us. The first scene is Jesus at the temple, and then the second scene is Jesus at this fig tree. He's standing before a fig tree. But as we look at both of these scenes together and try to put together, okay, what, what's sort of the main point? What's the main thing that we're going to look at and we're going to see from this passage? Well, I think it's this that the way to forgiveness of our sin and fellowship with God is not through self-focused religion, but through self-denying faith in Jesus, the Messiah. I'll say that again for, for you note-takers. I know it's a mouthful. The way to forgiveness of our sin and fellowship with God is not through self-focused religion, but through self-denying faith in Jesus, the Messiah. So I think this passage sets up pretty cleanly and concisely, pretty simply. So my outline is just two points this morning. The first thing that we see is robbery in God's house. And that's verses 12 through 17, robbery in God's house. And then secondly, we see a fruitless fruit tree. And it's verses 18 through 22, a fruitless fruit tree. My prayer this morning is that we will behold Jesus for who he is and that we'll be moved by his spirit to Respond in faith. So firstly, let's look at uh, this first scene at the temple, robbery in God's house. So again, just setting the context here, uh, you know, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He, he's arriving to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, and Matthew takes us directly to the temple. He takes us directly to the temple, and Matthew shows us at the temple two confrontations that Jesus has. Okay? Jesus is going to have two confrontations with two separate but related groups of people. Okay? So the first confrontation is going to happen in verses 12 and 13. Let's read those. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So 
Who's the first group of people that Jesus confronts? Well, he confronts these merchants, okay? So there's a, a group of merchants who have uh, shown up at the, the temple complex. It's a big complex with several different, uh, different zones, different areas. And these merchants have shown up in the outermost court, the outermost court of the temple. Called, you know, it was called the temple court of the, of the Gentiles because that's where Gentiles were allowed to come. So Gentiles, those who were not Jews and, and who you know, had not been uh, formally uh, brought in or either born or brought in as part of the people of God, they were still able to come and, and to uh, hear about God and to learn about uh, the worship of the one true God. And yet here when Jesus shows up, he sees a marketplace. Uh, here in the, in the text, in verse 12, it says, uh, those who are buying and selling, and uh, there's money changers, and there's people selling pigeons. So there's this big marketplace happening in the temple. So what's going on there? Why, why is that happening? You would think that, you know, the temple has a, has a very defined, simple purpose, and it's, it's to worship God. So what's happening here? Why is this, this marketplace going on? Well, at the time when Jesus arrives, uh, this is the, the, the feast of the Passover is, is beginning. And so there's a week-long festival of the Passover that's just starting. And these merchants have, have set up in the courtyard here because they know that there are thousands, maybe even millions of, of Jews who live all over the, the, the Greco-Roman world. They're coming into Jerusalem because they want to worship for the Passover celebration. And so if we've read our Old Testament, uh, we know that uh, worshiping God entails what for the Jews? It entails sacrifice. I heard some of you say it. It entails sacrifices. So they have to come into the temple, and they have to bring animal sacrifices. And, and so, uh, you know, if, if we read the Old Testament, we find that uh, there are the burnt offering sacrifices. There are sin offerings. Uh, there are, you know, free will offerings. There's all these offerings that require livestock, so lamb, sheep, goats. Uh, and then for, in some cases, you know, you know there's, there's provision made for those who are poor, those who are poor and can't afford those other livestock animals say, you know, the scriptures say, well, you can bring birds such as pigeons. And so that's exactly what we're, what we're seeing here. That's specifically why Matthew calls this out and points out the fact that uh, there are merchants there selling animals, and particularly pigeons. That's going to be important, you know, in, in a minute here, the fact that there are pigeons and, and why uh, there are certain people buying pigeons there and why this is such a problem, what's going on here in the temple. But there's also those who are money changers, and so they're changing currency. And so along with the animal sacrifices, uh, the Jews also had to pay a, a monetary tax, a, a temple tax. And so when they came to the, to, to the temple, they had to right, have the right kind of currency. So it's the same thing for us. You know, if you're uh, you know, going overseas somewhere, I realize that we're in a mostly you know, cashless society in, in you know, a lot of places we go. But you know, there's still places you go where you have to physically change over to use their currency. And so that's what's happening here. You have uh, Jews who are living all over the world. They're not living in Judea. And so when they come to the temple, they need to change their money over to the temple's money so that they can pay the tax that they're required by God's law to pay. So why is this a problem? What, what does Jesus do? He, in verse 12, it says that Jesus drives out the merchants. He drives them out. He forcefully kicks them out. He overturns the, the, table, the, the tables of the merchants. In John's account, we, we hear that Jesus actually made a whip. Jesus made a whip and starts, you know, I guess waving it around. And, I, I, you know, who knows? But I guess, you know, the point that's coming across is that Jesus is causing a huge commotion. There's chaos. I imagine people running around screaming, birds flying everywhere. I mean, this is crazy. Jesus is having a fit, right? 
Why is Jesus coming into the temple, making a huge scene, when it seems like these merchants are actually doing a, you know, a, a good service here? They're doing a good service to these people who have traveled from afar, and they're just coming to, to give their sacrifice. It's a, it, it's a good thing that they're doing, right? So why is Jesus so upset? Well, I think we find out if we look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this. He said to them, Jesus said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, Jesus starts by acknowledging the purpose of the temple. He says, okay, the purpose of the temple is that it's, God's, it's the place where God's people worship him and seek him through prayer. But how are the Jews using the temple? These merchants and those who are buying and selling. Well, Jesus says here that they've turned God's meeting house into a place for defrauding. So how, how, how do we see defrauding happening going on in this passage? Well, I think there's a couple of ways. First of all, I think we see actual financial defrauding that's, that's going on here. Um, and it's just, it, you know, in some ways, it's just a, a, a simple supply and demand issue. You know, these merchants are, are looking, and we, we have accounts from, you know, historians like Josephus and others who knew about that, that particular time, and they tell us, they report to us that uh, these merchants would often see uh, these foreigners coming in from all over the place who needed to buy animals, and they needed to change their money over. And so what are these merchants doing? Well, they're charging outrageous rates. So what we, what we find from you know, some historical sources that we have is that these merchants were often charging up to 50 times the normal rate for what you would, you know, what you would pay for an animal outside of Jerusalem or just out on the street. When you come into the temple complex, you're going to pay 50 times what you normally would if you needed to buy your, your goat or your lamb or your pigeon. But the thing about the, the buying of the, the pigeons, uh, you know, that was often for, for poor people. That was a provision that was made in God's law for the poor who already couldn't afford to buy these livestock. So God's saying, okay, I've, I, you know, out of, out of God's compassion, he's making provision for, for them to buy pigeons, which are cheaper. But when you go to the temple, you're still going to pay these exorbitant rates. So those who are already poor and already suffering, are, are, their, their, their financial situation is made even worse. They're being extorted they're being defrauded. But then secondly, we see that, uh, well, you know, in, in, instead of serving their brothers and sisters, these merchants were, were taking advantage of them. They're taking advantage of them. But the, the, the second thing that we see, the second kind of defrauding that we see is a, a deeper, more serious kind of defrauding. And we, we see this particularly in the words that Jesus says here. Uh, there, it's, a, it's a quotation of actually two Old Testament passages. So we read from Isaiah 56 uh, earlier this morning. Uh, Jesus says here in verse 13, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So that's from Isaiah 56 verse 7. So that's uh, a couple of verses before the passage that we read. But the point that Isaiah 56 makes is that uh, God's house, God's temple is a place for God's people Israel to come and to pray and to meet with him but not only for them, but for all the nations, for all the world. Uh, the, the, the verse in Isaiah 56 actually says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all, for all peoples, for all nations. And so I think there's, some, there's a little bit of irony in the fact 
that this marketplace is set up in the, the temple court of the Gentiles. And I would imagine, perhaps, that, you know, given the fact that there's, you know, perhaps hundreds and thousands of people buying and selling in this temple courtyard, there's probably not a whole lot of room for these Gentiles to go in there and to, to pray and to hear about the works of God and to, uh, to benefit, to be blessed from, by, by uh, their presence at the temple. And so already there, there's a physical barrier that's being set up for the nations. This marketplace, it's physically crowding out the Gentiles from entering the temple complex. But then there's a second dimension here. There's a second part of, of what Jesus says here. Uh, he cites Jeremiah 7. He says, you have made it a den of robbers. So briefly, I wanted to look at Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 8 through 11. Because I think that give, it's going to give us some clarity on what Jesus is talking about here. So in Genesis, sorry, Genesis. <clears throat> so in Jeremiah 7, it says this. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So what's going on there? Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Jesus points specifically to this passage to talk about what's going on here at the temple. Jesus sees parallels in, uh, between Israel and Jeremiah's day and these Jews who are shopping for animals in the shadow of the temple. I think Jesus sees hypocrisy, and that's what Matthew wants to, to bring out for us here, he's seeing hypocrisy. Uh, to, to, to be a hypocrite is to be one who wears a mask, okay? And so on the one hand, you're, you're, you seem outwardly devoted to God. You're doing all these things that seem like you're a true worshiper of God, while the reality of your heart is that you cherish sin, and your heart isn't actually committed to seeking God and humbly obeying him. I think what we see here, and certainly what we see in so much of the, the tragic history of God's people uh, throughout Scripture is what I've heard called rabbit's foot religion. And so you take a thing, an object, and in this case it would be the temple, and it's sort of like a lucky rabbit's foot. And you're not all that concerned about what's going on inside your own heart and being devoted to God, but you're saying, okay, this thing that God has set aside as a good thing that he loves and cherishes, as long as we outwardly show respect and love and care for that thing, then God's going to take care of us, and we're all right. See, for, for so many of God's people, the temple had become the totality of what religious devotion meant. And Jesus was calling them out. Jesus was saying, you're missing it. You're missing it. You are living in hypocrisy, and you're defrauding God. When Jesus uses the, when, when Jeremiah uses the term uh, a den of robbers in the way that Jesus uses it, he's, he's showing the, the people here in the temple that they're actually attempting to defraud God. In the same way that they're defrauding these people who are buying and selling, they're 
attempting to manipulate God with outward religious works, um, all the while trying to, to set, the, the terms, set the terms for themselves for their relationship to God. So I think this is instructive to us in so many ways. The big takeaway from, from this passage is that uh, the worship that God demands is to recognize that we have no righteousness of our own before him, but instead we trust in a righteous Savior that, that he has provided. You see, these Jews were trying to bring their own righteousness, and a lot of it was just outward righteousness. It was fake righteousness. It was fraudulent righteousness. And he's, he's going to have some things to say to the, the Jewish leaders in a little bit here in our passage. But here for this group, he's saying, okay, there is fraud happening in God's house. You're defrauding each other, and you're attempting to defraud God. But what we know and what we've been taught in God's word is that there's no way to defraud God. God knows. He created us to know him. He created us to love him. He knows everything that's going on in our hearts. He created us in his own image to love him and to worship him. And yet, ever since the fall, ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, we see the unraveling of, of, of humankind in our own morality. We see uh, the corruption of the world. Because we want to go our own way. We want to build our own self-made religion. And what God tells us in his word is that that ends only in death and destruction and sorrow and complete separation from God and his mercy. You see, there's no way that we ourselves can make our way to God on our own merits. And so God had to devise a plan. He had to uh, set out a, uh, a, a plan to send us a rescuer, to send us a savior. And he did that. The savior that he sent is Jesus, his eternal son, made flesh, born as a human being, who was promised in all of the scriptures that we have right here, who's promised to, to, to be the the, the king and the fulfillment of all of the law, all of the, the, the laws and, and the commandments that God gave to his people, Jesus himself fulfilled those because he perfectly obeyed in ways that we never did. He lived a perfect life. And not only that, he went to the cross. He went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve. He lived the life that we never could and he died the death that we should have died so that God could forgive us, so that the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus would become our righteousness. When Jesus looks, when God looks at Jesus, when the Father looks at his Son, sees his righteousness, he applies that to us because Jesus himself welcomes us. Jesus welcomes us and he says, these are mine. And so Jesus died, and three days later he rose to show that death has no mastery over him. And he's going to defeat death for us as well. One day we ourselves are going to be uh, raised to life and we are going to finally be done with the, the struggles with sin and sorrow that we, we have right now. So how do we respond to that gift? Well, we respond in repentance and in faith. We turn from our sins. And we trust in Christ, not ourselves but only in Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. 
And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're, you're not sure if you're a Christian, I want to let you know that when we use this word, the gospel, and when we talk about the fact that we're saved by Jesus, that's what we mean. That's what we're talking about. The fact that we're here this morning, that there's, there's no righteousness, there's nothing that we're doing here that accrues righteousness for us. We come to God empty-handed. We come to him completely empty-handed, and we're clothed with Jesus and his righteousness. So, Christian friends, I, I, I want to encourage you, I want to implore you this morning to remember this. Never, never move on from the gospel. There's so much that we, in our lives, as we, as we think about, okay, how do we grow and how do we become more Christ-like? There's so many different steps and so many different things that we, that we want to focus on and, and should focus on, but all of it needs to be in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never move on from, from talking about the gospel because the gospel from first to last is everything. It's everything to us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I want to I implore you to make, it, make today be the day that you repent, turn from your sins, turn from trusting yourself, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you, if you want to know more about what that looks like, what that means, I'll be at the back door there or you know, the, the, the door in the, in the lobby. I'd love to talk with you. Anybody who's up, been up here this morning would love to talk with you. Please, uh, don't, don't leave here today without asking questions, without talking to us about more, about knowing more about what it means to, to follow Christ, to, to follow Jesus by faith and be saved. So that's the first confrontation that Jesus has at the temple. So let's look at the second confrontation. Who, who are the second group of people that Jesus has a confrontation with at the temple? And that's going to be in verses 14 through 17. And it reads like this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So we see here that the second confrontation that Jesus has is with uh, the, the chief priests and the, and, and the scribes. It's with the Jewish leaders, okay? So he's confronted the, the merchants in the temple, and now he's talking to the, the, the Jewish leaders. So it's helpful here to see, okay, well, what, what's, you know, what's going on? And we've talked about it already, the fact that Jesus, when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds were yelling to him, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is an acknowledgement of the people that, that Jesus is the long-awaited king uh, from David's line who will establish his kingdom forever. Okay, so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so the Jewish leaders have, have had Jesus under a microscope already for several chapters in, in Matthew. So again, if you have time this afternoon or sometime, read through the whole Gospel of Matthew, and you'll see uh, this isn't the beginning of this confrontation. This is a long pattern of, of the, the scrutiny that Jesus' ministry is under from these leaders. And the leaders, uh, in verse 16, uh, they consider the, 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 the statement from the crowds as blasphemy, Okay? They consider it blasphemy, and they say to, to Jesus, "Do you not hear what these are? Or do you hear what these are saying?" 
And the implication is they're saying, stop them. Jesus, correct them. What, don't you hear what they're saying? Cor- you know, rebuke them. And in fact, in Luke's, in Luke's gospel, that's exactly what they say. They say, uh, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Okay? So that's what's happening. There, there, there's uh, this acknowledgement of who, who, of who Jesus is, and the leaders hear it as blasphemy. And Jesus, not the temple system, is the center of Israel's hopes for redemption and restoration. And when the leaders hear that, they go, uh-uh, that, that can't stand. But Jesus doesn't correct the statement, does he? No, Jesus, he confirms that the children are correct, that he actually is the Messiah. So how does Jesus do that? Well, uh, again, in, in uh, continuing in verse 16, uh, he cites uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. It says, you know, out of the mouths of infants and nursing ba- uh, babies, uh, you have prepared praise. So here... And if we're familiar with, with uh, Psalm 8, which begins with uh, this praise and this you know, uh, exaltation of the majestic glory of God, Jesus here is linking himself with that praise. And he's accepting the praise that belongs only to God himself. Jesus is accepting that praise for himself. So one thing I want to say is don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh. Don't ever let anybody tell you that, because he does. Right here he does it. He does it all over the place. He's, he's linking himself to the praises of, of God's people, to God himself. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's about me. That's about me. So Matthew's burden is to show that Jesus is the forever king that Israel has been waiting for ever since Adam and Eve ate that fruit. Jesus is the forever king. And he wants to show that here to these, these leaders. He wants to show that here to the people of God who have that expectation, but they're not seeing Jesus as the, as, as the one. So one more thing that we want to notice here about this scene at the temple, and then we'll move on here. Between these two confrontations, between the, the merchants and the, the Jewish leaders, what do we see there in verse 14? The blind and the lame find mercy from Jesus. In the midst of judging the self-righteousness of of Jews at the temple, Jesus is showing mercy to those who recognize their vulnerability and come running to him for salvation. Jesus is is judging, but he's also saving. And that's often what we see in the pages of Scripture. We see that salvation comes through judgment and in the midst of judgment. As as Jesus judges wickedness and idolatry and self-righteousness, he's showing mercy to those who are lame and blind and know that they need help and and come and say Jesus help us save us heal us friends i think what what matthew is trying to do for us in documenting all of this is he's trying to help us to see the posture of our hearts as we come before jesus the posture that we need to have so that's the first scene i know that was quite long but the second scene that we're going to look at is a fruitless fruit tree. And this will be briefer than that, so please don't panic. We'll get you out of here. So the second scene is a fruitless fruit tree, and that's verses 18 through 22. So Jesus is is done, for now at least, confronting fraudulent worshipers, uh, but he still has one more lesson for his disciples. In verses 18 18 through 21, he says this. uh, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, uh, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. 
When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. All right, so, I mean, let's, let's go ahead and admit it. This is, this is a weird incident. This is just kind of strange. Like, okay, what's happening here? Why does Jesus see a tree, this inanimate object, and kind of yell at the tree, and then it withers? Like, what's happening here? So two questions we should ask is, why did this happen? And why did Matthew include it here in this account of Jesus' ministry? So first, let's, you know, let's you know, remember the facts here. On his way back to the city, Jesus spots a, a fig tree, and he goes looking for figs from this tree because he's hungry. But what does Matthew tell us about this tree? What does Matthew tell us about this tree? It, it doesn't have fruit, but it has leaves. It has leaves on it. And so when, when you see a fig tree, again, I don't know much about fig trees myself, but I had to look into this and, okay, just kind of verify this. If a fig tree has leaves, that means that it should have fruit on it. So there's a sign that this tree should have fruit, and yet it doesn't have any fruit on it. Jesus finds no fruit. And so Jesus, in response to that, the fact that he's expecting fruit and doesn't find any, he speaks a word of judgment to this tree. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the tree withers. So is Jesus angry at the tree? I mean, it seems kind of unreasonable. I think what we're seeing here is not anger from Jesus, but it's another object lesson. It's an object lesson that he's teaching his disciples. And the fig tree is actually a metaphor. Jesus is using the fig tree as a metaphor for the kind of self-righteous religion that we just saw at the temple. So uh, those who don't bear fruit are going to be judged. And, you know, one thing that we see in our culture that, we, that we've talked about, and maybe you've heard of, is the idea of a carnal Christian. Okay, so it's the idea that you can be a Christian and live totally in the world and bear no fruit whatsoever. But because you've professed Christ, and because maybe intellectually you believe the gospel, you believe the, 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 the gospel to be true, you can still live however you want and, and claim Christ. And Jesus is blowing that out of the water right here. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. If you don't bear fruit, you will be judged. Now, real quick, I want to just acknowledge, though, that there's, we have to be careful here because there's a difference between bearing little fruit and bearing no fruit at all. If you're, if you're somebody who is uh, a Christian and you're bearing a little bit of fruit and you know, you're, you're kind of struggling through life and you know, maybe there's some sin struggles, but you're, you're fighting that sin. This isn't who, who Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about those who are fighting and struggling and battling and, and maybe uh, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're still struggling, but you're, you're bearing some fruit. He's talking about those who have no concern whatsoever about living, you know, uh, living for, for, for Christ, obeying him, those who are bearing no fruit whatsoever. So if, you're, if you are somebody who is bearing little fruit and you're struggling, two things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to be encouraged by God's grace. Be encouraged by God's grace in your life. And secondly, keep fighting for growth in Christ's likeness. God's not done with you yet. He's got more grace for you, and his spirit will keep working in you. But if you're somebody who's bearing no fruit, and you, you're, you're claiming to be a Christian, but your life just doesn't show it at all, there's no fruit to speak of, then the question I would have for you is, on what basis can you say at all that you're a true follower of Jesus? 
On what basis? If there's no fruit. I think that, that's what Jesus is actually getting here, getting at here. Uh, there's, a, there's a pastor by the name of, of Paul Tripp who uses an, an illustration that you know, I think is funny, but it really kind of gets to the point of, of what's happening here. Uh, you know, he talks about uh, a fruit tree, and you know, let's say you know, somebody comes to me and says, hey, Marcus, uh, I think we should, we should plant a fruit tree or uh, an apple tree uh, here at the church, on the church grounds. So it's like, great, let's, uh, let's do that. We should, we, I think it would be great to have an apple tree. That would be beautiful, and we could you know, pick some apples from that. Um, so I say, you know what, instead of planting a new, a new tree, uh, I think we should save some money here, and let's just take one of these other trees, and I'll take my nail gun, and I'll, you know, I'll go down to Wegmans, I'll buy some apples, and I'll just nail some apples to that tree. There you go, we have an apple tree, right? Well, no. I mean, that tree isn't bearing real fruit. That's fake fruit. That's fake fruit. I mean, the fruit itself is real, but that's not, it's not actually growing from the tree. And what's, I mean, what's going to happen to those apples? I mean, those apples, the longer they, they hang there, are just going to wither and die because there's no, they're not connected to any root system at all. They're just going to spoil, you know. But that's what we often do. That's what so many of us often do in our lives when we're trying to justify ourselves before other people, before God, when we're trying to reassure ourselves that we're real Christians, is we start nailing fruit to the tree of our lives. We start appealing to these outward things and just trying to do more outward things, even when there's rot going on inside of us. There's no real faith. There's no real commitment to God in faith. Brothers and sisters, are you bearing real fruit or are you simply nailing fruit to a tree? So here in this, in this passage here, the, the disciples' response to Jesus cursing this fig tree, well, number one, they're amazed. They're amazed at what Jesus has done because Jesus has once again displayed his divine supernatural authority over God's creation. But then what do the, the, the disciples do? They don't ask why, like, like I would when I go to the passage. They ask how. Jesus, how did this happen? How, how did this fig tree wither with just a word from your mouth? And Jesus is going to answer their question here in verses 21 and 22. Uh, he says this, Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you ask, say, to the, say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, I, I do think we need to be really careful how we read this and how we understand this. Jesus is not saying, hey, if you just have faith, you're going to have magical powers. Okay? You can literally make a mountain fall down into the ocean. That's not what he's saying. I think, you know, any, any of us can read that and, and pretty easily see that that's not what he's saying. But I, I think a more subtle way to misread this passage is the idea that uh, whatever, whatever we want or think that we need, if we, ha- if we just have enough faith, if we just have enough faith, Jesus will give it to us. God will give us that thing. And if we don't have that, or if we're suffering or going through hardship, it, it means, it means we, we lack faith. The more you suffer, it just means that, oh, you don't have enough faith. Because if you have faith, then 
You're not going to suffer. God's going to give you everything you want. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And in fact, that's, a, that's the root of, of what we call a prosperity gospel. Okay, that idea that the more faith you have, the more God's just going to give you whatever you want. So if Jesus isn't saying that, well, what is he saying? Well, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he's just exerted his authority and his power over his creation. And he's saying, if you think that's amazing, what I've done for this fig tree, just think about what I'll do for you if you have faith in me and believe in me. He's, he's speaking metaphorically about these mountains and the sea. He's calling his disciples to live by faith and experience life-giving, transformational power of Jesus. And so he talks about this specifically when he talks about uh, prayer. He says, you know, prayer, uh, you know, prayer is how we express to God not only what we think, uh, what we want or what we think we need, but also what we believe that God is capable of. So if we're, if we're praying big things, it means that we believe that God is capable of big things. This is, what, this is what Jesus is getting to here. He's not, he's not saying that we have you know, magical powers or that we just need to have more faith and he'll give us everything. He's pointing to his own power to save, his own power over all creation. He says, I, I, I will be your Lord and your Savior. Just trust in me, believe in me, have faith in me. Believe me for big things. So the question I want to ask you is, what does your prayer life say about your faith in God? That's not, that's not meant to create guilt or encourage a, a spirit of legalism, but it's meant to challenge you to examine yourself and consider how your own habits uh, of prayer might reveal the state of your own heart and where you might need to grow. So I want to encourage you to, to talk to a friend. Talk to a friend in the church about, uh, about, okay, what are some things that I and that we can pray for together? What, what things can we believe God for? How can we trust in God and grow in our faith? Again, not, not for um, material benefit and not for this sort of like magical, you know, we, we believe this and God's just going to give us everything. No, but how can we look at our prayer life and say, I, I want to understand, uh, I want to I understand more about uh, who God is so that I can pray for bigger things. I want to believe him bigger things. Friends, we're about to close here, but I just want to recall for you that uh, this week we are we're, we're celebrating and we're remembering and we're reflecting on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. What he did for us in his life, what he did for us in his death, and what he did for us in his resurrection. And Jesus has entered the temple here and he is called out the, the fraudulent religion that he sees, and he's called us to faith in him. And later on in that week, he's going to spend time with his disciples. He's going to give them yet another object lesson. Jesus is giving so many object lessons here. And this time he's going to use bread, he's going to use wine. He says, this, <clears throat> this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. And this is going to uh, help you to see what I'm, what I'm about to do for you. And he says, do this Every time you eat this bread and drink this wine, do this in remembrance of me. So brothers and sisters, we have the privilege today of doing just that. We have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper 2,000 years ago. We have the, 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 the joy of doing that in remembrance of him, the sacrifice of his body and his blood on our behalf to give us his righteousness.
So as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, brothers and sisters, let's just remember what this week is all about. And we look, at, we look ahead with joy to, Lord willing, next Sunday as we get to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy to us, your kindness in sending us a Savior. Lord, we have no righteousness. We have no merit in ourselves to bring before you. And we often try to, to fake it. We often try to bring our own false righteousness to stand in, in place of your righteousness. But Lord, we are, we are reminded by your word that none of us is righteous. No good comes from us apart from you. Father, we, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live a perfect life for us, to die an atoning death and to rise victoriously for our, for our justification. Lord, as we partake in the Lord's Supper together, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, that we might reflect soberly, but also joyfully on the gift of, of your son Jesus. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.